At that time, we had already done more than 100 of these interviews, and I literally printed out around 75 interviews at a confluence, and I handed it to him as an interview candidate, and I said, here's what we've heard, now you know. So like, there's no issue in terms of wondering if you're being marketed to by the CEO you know, in order to get you on board. Here's kind of what we've seen, validate it for yourself. Hey, it's Adam Schoenfeld. Welcome back to the Built in Seattle podcast, where Seattle's top entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders share their stories and their lessons from behind the scenes. If you like this show, then you'll love my new short weekly email, the Pike Street Journal. Subscribe at psj.email. Each week I send some bonus nuggets from these interviews, stuff I get when the recorder's off, and some more insider takes on Seattle people and companies. That's psj.email. On this episode, I met with Craig Unger. He's the CEO and founder at Hyperproof. That's hyperproof.io. They're working in the compliance space, one of those unsexy but massive opportunities that second-time founders seem to love. Craig spent 20 years at Microsoft, most recently as a GM. Then he founded Zuqua. Hyperproof is his second startup. They're off to a great start with just under $6 million raised and a really awesome customer list if you check out their website. Craig brought a lot of analytical rigor to every step of the process, and we talked about that. We went into his customer interviews, how he hired his first head of sales, and how he built his company values. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Craig. I'm here with the one, the only, Craig Unger. Hey, Craig, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Adam. Happy to be here. So we were just joking around a little bit that a lot of people accidentally call this hyper loop. Has that got on your nerves yet? No, I'm okay because you know what? If it's compared to one of like Elon Musk's, you know, dalliances, I think there's worse things in the world. So I'm right. cool with it. <laughs> it's like in any press is is good press. And if your press is anyhow tying you to Elon Musk, then it's good. Yeah, I think somebody just called with a check for about a billion dollars. So I can't, can't <laughs> complain about it. There you go. I'm really excited to talk with you. I know our paths have crossed, but we haven't had a chance to really sit down. And I'd love to start by talking about what, Hyperproof is up to and just where you're at with the business. Yeah, sure. So Hyperproof is a two-year-old company, Adam. We founded it in July of 18. And <laughs> Hyperproof is really founded to uh, create a new category of business application in the area of compliance. And we like to say that we enable continuous compliance. And um, gee, when I say business application, think of things like CRM systems and ERP systems. And <clears throat> here's a new one in the area of compliance. Business applications are hard to develop. You know, there's a lot of business logic, different roles, collaboration, data integrity, and large businesses are betting on this kind of software. So it takes a while to engineer. So we were founded two years ago. We spent uh, the first four months doing a large number of deep interviews with prospects and partners. So we did 50 of those before we ever wrote any code, which was a very different way of doing things than I had in my previous company. And it gave us a pretty good feel for what we needed to start building back in September of 18. And to make a long story short, we spent the next 14 months or so building the product. And we shipped the first version in December of last year, right before COVID hit and all of that, you know, unfortunate stuff. So it's been really interesting founding a company during that period of time. But over the last six months, we've really started, you know, selling the software, taking it to market and learning all those lessons. So that's kind of where we're at. We're, you know, a little bit more than 25 people, Bellevue area, raised a couple rounds and we're having fun. How much total capital have you raised? 
so we've raised uh, $6 million, two $3 million angel rounds, one of them in January of uh, 19, and then one of them right here in March before COVID hit. And the second, the first round had 23 angel investors and the second round had 16 or so. So mostly large community of mostly local, you know, smart money investors who are either in other tech companies, large ones or entrepreneurs, professional services and in, in tech, things like that. Awesome. I want to, I want to talk about the 50 interviews for a minute. Cause that definitely stands out to me. Uh, a lot of people kind of skip that step. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious how you decided to take that approach and, and then what that actually looked like more tactically. Well, it's interesting because it affects everything, including the initial hires that you make. So the main reason to your question, why we took that approach was in my, in my first startup at Azuqua, we kind of started with a technology solution that we thought would be really valuable. If, you wanted, if we wanted to be critical of ourselves, we can say that we started with a solution that was looking for a problem. The happy part is we did end up finding some, a lot of problems that it ended up solving. But we knew even from fairly early on that a more uh, kind of fundamental approach to really figuring out the pain points would have um, accelerated our efforts there and gotten us to have a product uh, that was more fit to purpose in a faster time. So with Hyperproof, what we decided to do is take very much product management view first. And the idea was to really go in. We knew at, at, our, at a fundamental level that this area of compliance was challenging. And I can tell you, I can, I can describe that by saying, you know, whenever you talk to somebody who's working compliance, you never get back, oh, well, you know, why are you working on that? That's all going really well for me. I don't need any help there. You know, you always get the, wow, this is a slog, it's difficult, it's tough. So we knew there was something there, but we didn't know exactly what. And so we just wanted to put a structured process in place of customer inquiry. Um, and I, one of the first hires is a gentleman named Alex Vorobia, who was at Microsoft. He also used to be the head of platform program management at Smartsheet. Another one was Bob Heddle, who was running our program management. We, were, we started meeting at Einstein Bagels in Mercer Island, and we started like identifying people who would have been facing these compliance challenges, and we just put together some very structured you know, questions to make sure we understood what was really you know, at issue, and uh, we came up with the first designs for the product really before we ever even hired a developer. Wow. So did you, at that point, did you have a hypothesis on what the solution would be or were you merely doing discovery in the problem and the category and the persona um, and sort of the, the insight, like how, what guardrails were in place when you started the process? Well, that's actually a very insightful question. And I can, it's clear that you've also found it if you're asking that question. So the best way to answer that is to say that we named the company, I had named it when I first founded it. So I had a very strong hypothesis and the name of the company is Hyperproof. And that, that hypothesis was around the fact that one of the biggest pain points in this whole process is how do you go and get the evidence you need to actually show that you're compliant? Because I think at the end of the day, you know, when you undergo these audits, when you're trying to assure trust you know, with your customers, with your partners, it really is about the evidence. And Right now, up till now, it's been very, very difficult to ascertain that. So I went in with a pretty strong hypothesis that that was going to come out being one of the top problems. I will tell you that Alex and Bob, they weren't sure. You know, they weren't skeptical. They just didn't know. They had a bit less of a hypothesis, but, but it ended up, you know, that that, that was kind of borne out. And, and we learned many other things that kind of were not in my initial assumptions. And I guess the best way to describe it is the product that we built is very much in line with what I would have imagined us building when I started the company. 
And in fact, so far to this point, we haven't done any pivoting and I don't expect us to do any pivoting. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, it's, it's such a balance, right? Between, you know, do, having a hypothesis, but then you can get confirmation bias when you're doing that, but being open-minded, you know, but also like you want a point of view. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. I saw on your website, like the logos you have are remarkable logos, especially for an early stage company. What did the, did the 50 interviews actually lead to any customers? Was there anything that came from that, that, you know, helped you accelerate your early acquisition and go to market? Yeah, they did. It, it was really, really helpful. The way we did that, Adam, is that we had the whole body of uh, interviews. We knew who was kind of in the most pain because of the research that we did. And what we did is around September of last year, when we were about a year into building the product, but we weren't done with it, we decided to do some proof of concepts. We made them free and we went back to that you know, interview base and said, would you be interested in exploring with us, you know, helping us to really flesh out the, the, the product? And we ended up with a series of about six or seven POCs that we ran with the goal of turning the first few into customers by the end of the calendar year, which was, which was actually a bit of an aggressive goal because we were just shipping at that time. So they were going to have to like, you know, sign as customers right as we were shipping. And, you know, I was happy to say we did. We landed the first uh, three customers right before the end of last year, and those were converted from POCs, which were in turn converted from interviews. Nice. What was one thing that surprised you about those interviews or something that challenged an assumption you had? Well, one thing that was a really pleasant surprise um, was that I wasn't used to having people lean in so much in this process. When I was doing my last company, it was a lot more hit or miss uh, in terms of like, is the person that you're targeting really responsible for what your product is enabling? And will they want to talk to you? There were some aspects of timing. They have to be doing the exact workload that we're trying to sell at the time that we're trying to speak to them. And occasionally it kind of felt like we were having to line, the stars were having to line up or we were having to find the proverbial unicorn to actually get in front of the right person. But again, the, the happy uh, news for us in, in the compliance space is that out of all the people we spoke to originally, nobody reports having a wonderful time trying to get their company compliant. There's a lot at risk and it makes people nervous. People, there's been studies that show that people feel a lot of personal liability when they're working in the compliance process beyond what they just feel as an employee because there are issues of legality, et cetera. So the idea that you know the people that we spoke to were so willing to have a discussion with us was actually the first sign that maybe we're onto something here because at minimum, it allowed us to get more at-bats. Not necessarily all successes, but you know, I really feel after going through this a couple of times that if you can actually drive meaningful discussions in the area that you're working, that's the first proxy for you to understand that you may have a successful business there. That's really interesting. So not even what they say or how they follow up, but just taking the meeting is like yeah. a great signal to say that, oh, we're, we're in the right area here of finding pain. Well, and actually I used that, that data to help recruit my salespeople. Cause you know, salespeople don't want to be idle. And I'd say, look, I, you know, we haven't, when I, when I was first recruiting them, I'd say, look, we haven't tried to sell it yet. But one thing I can tell you, is that you'll be getting on the phone, you'll be having discussions, et cetera, et cetera, and we'll learn the rest together. And what's interesting is that when I hired my head of growth who has sales marketing and partnerships for me, so he has mo most of all the GTM activities, at that time, 
we had already done more than 100 of these interviews, and I literally printed out around 75 interviews at a confluence, and I handed it to him as an interview candidate, and I said, here's what we've heard, now you know. So like, there's no issue in terms of wondering if you're being marketed to by the CEO you know, in order to get you on board. Here's kind of what we've seen, validate it for yourself. Matt Lato is a gentleman's name, he went through that process. He ended up validating a lot of that with his own personal network, and then he ended up joining. And, you know, that's kind of the, the way the stories kept going is, you know, we have a lot of very close engagement with prospects. So it's, a, it's an exciting, you know, prospect for uh, sales folks to get involved in, keeps them, keeps them busy. Salespeople don't want to be idle. I've never heard that value prop of doing customer inquiry as a, as a way to recruit early sales hires, but it totally makes sense if you can set it up and have the the artifacts from those conversations that it would make it much more compelling. Yeah, it wasn't part, it wasn't really planned. I just backed yeah. into it. Like I had the data and I'm like, you know, I could spend two hours, you know, blasting your hair off, telling you all these stories or you can just read them. <laughs> it's just kind of backed into that. Yeah. So um, just going kind of back in time a little bit, it strikes me that you even picked the compliance space, right? Like most of us don't wake up in the morning and think of, Oh, there must be a lot of problems in compliance. What was the context you had or, or where did that come from in, in just knowing where to look? So there's a couple things that kind of came together to have this aha. One of them was my experience at Microsoft. And I wrote about this on the founding story on our website where I used to manage the Windows Live ID team, which is our authentication service. And there was a claim that was made by somebody on our marketing side. The government got up in arms. You can read all about this. It's all public. And Microsoft and the government had you know, some sit-down discussions about how to address this. And what came out of it was, hey, we want you, Microsoft, to do these very deep audits once every two years. And it was new to me. You know, I had never done it before, but I was leading the tech team. So I found myself leading these audits, even though I really didn't know much about them. And the potential fine for violating some of these procedures were almost a foreshadowing of the GDPR style fines where it's like, you know, a million dollars an incident. And, you know, we had, of course, hundreds of millions of uh, unique users that were using our services. So it could have been absolutely debilitating for the company, which is, which is where all the pressure came. But there was no tooling, right? You know, everybody was sitting around a table. We had security and legal and operations, but we didn't have any tools and we didn't know how to manage this whole process. And as a result, it was stressful, it was nerve wracking, it was also inefficient, and it presented a whole lot more risk than we wanted. When I founded Azuqua and we were going through our own compliance, it was a much smaller version of the same problem without any infrastructure. Usually it's just a melange of collaboration tools, you know, like spreadsheets and email. And literally one night, middle of the night, I just had the aha and I said, wait a minute, we can make this so much better if we just focus on building a business application, a little bit like what I had done before in Dynamic CRM at Microsoft, a structured business application around compliance. And that's really how Hyperproof was born from some of my own experiences in the past. I love that. I love how those dots kind of became a line over a lot of years of different companies and different contexts. Yeah, it, probably that's true. When you think about it, probably my first uh, exposure was in 2001 or so, and then we founded it in 18. So that is an interesting point that like sometimes it takes, you know, 15 years or more of, of something building up to a crescendo. And of course, you know, the other part of it also is the environment, right? The environment has to be ready for it. And that was one of the things that was absolutely crucial in the timing of Hyperproof was the fact that 
Besides for the increase in the overall workload of security compliance, those are things like SOC program or ISO, there's more and more of those. There was also the rise of privacy in 18, 2018, starting with GDPR coming out of the EU. And now you've got CCPA, you've got all these different programs. There's 40 states right now, Adam, that are working on programs for privacy, mostly because the federal government didn't really establish a standard to start. So just the amount of work in having to do that, and then looking back at how painful it was just to do one, that's really how it all came together. And I'm like, this is going to explode, right? Something's got to be done. And then I think the final, the final, final, you know, kind of uh, straw that broke the camel's back that was like, you just have to go do this, was I was looking at the growth in spend in the compliance area. Turns out a lot of it was dedicated towards human capital. So a lot of the growth was just people being hired. And to me, that was like the best possible sign that technology hadn't been deployed to solve this problem. Was it, and and it's, it was clear that operating budgets couldn't continue to grow at that pace, especially at the pace that the amount of compliance work was growing. So it all seemed like it just kind of made sense. I love hearing that the aha was, you know, it took all these things kind of coming together. It wasn't just this stroke of genius that happened to come to you, like the context and the the shift in the external environment was big in this case too, which without that, you know, maybe this isn't possible or maybe the pain's not escalated enough to matter. And like you said, to create a new category, which sounds like you're, you're working on doing, which means you must like pain. Yeah, <laughs> it is. You try to build it from nothing. Right. For better or worse. And, and you had another crazy thing about your story is if I, if I'm doing the math, right, you, it was 20 or 21 years at Microsoft before jumping out to be an entrepreneur, which typically is like the point of no return. Uh, so what, what was it that got you, I mean, out to do a Zuqua in terms of your motivation? It's a great question. You know, I had always had in mind that I wanted to do entrepreneurship. You know, from a family perspective, I'll fill in a blank here where um, my family, we're from New York and my family uh, is also Holocaust survivors. And so my grandfather well, my grandmother and my mother after World War II came to the U.S. and my grandfather couldn't even join them. He wasn't allowed to, to come. Eventually he came and uh, he started out by carrying furniture on his back. And I'm like almost 6'3". My grandfather's like 5'3". So mal- mostly due to malnourishment, right? And I saw him go through that, you know, and I saw him start his own company and, and really kind of pull him and his family up, you know, by the bootstraps to a place where we had what we needed. And I think that that experience really uh, drove a big desire in, all, in my whole family to be entrepreneurs, to be entrepreneurs. And the, the logic I went through was that, you know, will I ever look back and say, hey, I really missed years 21 through 30 at Microsoft? I don't think so. Microsoft's an amazing company. I had an amazing time. But, you know, you're gonna miss what you didn't try to do. So it was time for me to go try and do it. And, uh, you know, luckily, you know, honestly, some people have a much harder time doing a startup than I did because they're, they're younger, maybe their finances uh, are more challenging and things like that. I'm very aware of the fact that I worked at, for 21 years at Microsoft, which gave me really the luxury to, to do a startup without risking kind of, you know, like all that much. So I feel very fortunate for that. And my hat's off to people who do it when they actually are maxing out their credit cards and things like that, they have my utmost respect. So what from the 20 years at Microsoft transferred nicely over to the job of startup founder? 
Well, for me, and remember, when I was at Microsoft, I was a general manager and I was on the product side. Microsoft has a pretty interesting divide between the go-to-market side and you know, the product side. So all the things I learned in building teams, technical teams, from really probably two main perspectives. One is the team building, the team motivation, you know, the, the leadership skills, even how to really recruit well. I think I learned a lot of that at Microsoft. The second big one would have been the strategy. Like, you know, I kind of specialized in product strategy in various different areas when I was at Microsoft. So the idea that you can kind of look at a market and figure out what needs to be done is something that is almost a, a skill that you work on and perfect in a long career. Whereas a lot of times with younger entrepreneurs, um, it's more of just an aha or an insight. And sometimes they go after it because they don't know when they'll have another insight. Uh, like that. And that, that's all reasonable. But when you've done it for a long time, you realize you're probably going to have one of these every once in a while. And the real skill is in exploring it to make sure that it really has legs and looking at it from all these multiple angles. So those things really served me well in doing startups. The thing that was a challenge, which I'm, I'm assuming that might be the next question, is since you are so insulated from the go-to-market part of this, you really have no idea what it means to really call people and start saying, you know, uh, cold call and say, hey, I'm Craig from, you know, Azuqua or from Hyperproof. I'd like to talk to you about this or that. I mean, you literally know nothing about it. Most people come out of Microsoft, at least back when I did this, the networking that they did was, hi, I'm Craig Unger, general manager at Microsoft, you know, and then usually you get a pretty good response from that. And as you know well as a founder, you need to try a whole lot of other things, you know, so that was and continues to be a place of great learning and challenge. How is it, how is it different um, doing a startup for the second time now, right? Like you took that 20 years at Microsoft and, and jumped out and did it and, and had a great run at Azuqua. And what, what's been different the second time around? I think the biggest difference there, Adam, is a little more flexibility in being able to do it the way that I would like to do it. A lot of times people come together at, a, at the right moment with the right opportunity, the right idea, they find, they find somebody who is the right person, or at least they believe is the right person, and they, they kind of get going. And it's a set of circumstances that occur, almost like a big bang. So those things are great, and they can lead to some awesome outcomes. But naturally, if it's a big bang, you have a little bit less control. When I finished Azuqua, it's kind of an interesting story because I left a year before Azuqua sold. And I started Hyperproof six months before Azuka was sold. So I was facing the, the uh, prospect of starting a second company before having any resolution on the first company and also with very little in the way of like salary, as you know, when you're a founder over the previous five years. So it was, you know, I had to really want to do it, right? And I also wanted to do it, you know, I wanted to be very thoughtful about how I wanted to structure the experience to enjoy it most. So I was able to figure out what do I want my founder situation to be like? What type of software do I want to work on? What kind of problem? You know, with Hyperproof, there's a real kind of moral, you know, imperative around helping people to, to do more on trust, to be more trustworthy, to, you know, take care of people's data, to avoid breaches, all of those things. And that kind of, you know, sense of purpose is something I was able to, you know, kind of create as a criteria for what I was going to do. Again, I think it's a luxury, but I was able to do it. And so this second time around, I was able to structure the, you know, the experience a whole lot more 
and I very much enjoyed the first time around and I'm enjoying the second time around even more for those reasons. You know, when, when Hyperproof sold, you know, it was an interesting moment, excuse me, when Azuka sold, it was an interesting moment in the journey in Hyperproof because I'm sitting there going, okay, now the situation's changed a little bit, right? I have resolution on my old company. Is this still what I want to be doing? And, you know, it confused me for a minute. I was like, okay, let me go and look back and see what's the experience like so far, where are we headed? And, you know, in a very short period of time, I decided this is absolutely what I want to be doing, but it was an interesting referendum on that. So, so yeah, I think I was fortunate in the ability to structure the experience somewhat. What's been the downside to that highly structured experience and having that level of control versus the big bang that just kind of people come together and an idea coalesces and it has this momentum and life of its own. Have you found any, any gotchas or any downsides? Cause you know, I know a lot of people that second time around do think that way. Like I'm going to control it. I'm going to be able to be patient in these ways and kind of define the, the path. Have you found any, anything that's been a downside to that? I think there's only one downside I could think of. And that downside is the fact that if you're trying to be uh, more kind of diligent and careful in trying to figure out, you know, if it's the right opportunity, there's just a whole lot more research to do, which is again, back to the 50 interviews. And then there's also just a whole lot more convincing to do with people because you have to actually show them what you found because you know, if you, I think if you're doing the startup thing the right way, it's almost like you found, you know, a, a hidden treasure map. Like you found a, a map to some treasure that nobody knows exists, but you really feel exists and you want to get some other people on the journey with you. When you have the big bang approach, you know, oftentimes that's when a lot of different people start companies in the same area at the same time. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but the idea might be in those cases a little more obvious. And then what starts to really come at a premium is the value of great execution. So I think the bottom line is that the initial parts of the, of the company, the initial phase of structuring the idea, convincing people to join, convincing the investment community that it's worthwhile. And also, especially if you're trying to engage in category creation, convincing press and others that what you're doing is something unique. That takes a lot of heavy lifting, but there's a great sense of accomplishment once you do it. So I wouldn't even say one way is any more right than the other, you know. I mean, I would have loved to have the experience where I figured out that YouTube was required, right, at the, at the right time. I mean, that would be amazing. But, you know, we each take our own journey, and I'm enjoying this part of it. Yeah, it's interesting. I haven't heard many people talk about it the way you are, which I find fascinating. But your path certainly requires more rigor and more convincing versus just maybe some religion and evangelism, That's right. which often just happens and people have the shared religion and they're able to just go yell from the rooftops with minimal rigor. That's so true. And that's when you read in like TechCrunch, how much did they raise? Wow, they must be really amazing evangelists. And, you know, they must be really able to tell this amazing story. And, you know, um, sometimes it works out well and there's nothing wrong with that path either. But I've always been a little bit more, you know, uh, structured and analytical, you know, in, in my thinking. And maybe that's reflected by the fact that I took 20 years before I actually did anything entrepreneurial. So there you go. We talked a little bit before about having the right expectations coming in. How, how does that look in, at, at Hyperproof when you're talking to new team members or just checking in with yourself? Like, how do you articulate the why, you know, why do this? Why take this risk? Why this thing? both internally and when you're kind of bringing people into the company? Well, I think what's important is, is to kind of both yourself and when you're speaking to people to try to separate the, the motivations 
<clears throat> for why they might want to get involved. Because I think startups in some senses have some glamour associated with them, but some of that glamour, as you all know from founding, you, know, you founded more companies than I have, Adam, some of that is a little bit romanticized, right? But what I found is, is kind of the best quality in new employees. And, 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 and then I asked this also of others is, you know, why are you joining in terms of like the work environment? When you find people that really want to work on a small team, really want to make impact in a new area, right? And those are the reasons why I think it's great to join. And if you have people to get, you know, more to specifically to your question about setting expectations, if you're sorting and filtering through people's, you know, desires and expectations and you find those people that are really aligned with why you're there, then it becomes a lot easier to set expectations because what you're saying is, look, we're going on this journey together. We know that there's risk. Let's just, you know, kind of acknowledge that. Here's what we're trying to change. And, you know, as, you know, that's probably from my perspective, the biggest reason to get involved in the startup at all is that you want to change something, right? And if you get people that are, you know, geared that way, then the nature of the discussion you're having with them is more about those things. Like, do we have a real opportunity to change something? Yes. Is our work environment really awesome? Yes. Do we only hire awesome people? Yes. You don't have to spend an inordinate amount of time saying, well, if we're, if we're the next unicorn in the Seattle area and you divide by the number of shares after two more rounds of dilution, then each share is worth this much and therefore your stock options, you still want to give them a, a sense of that and you absolutely want them to participate once that happens, but you don't necessarily want that to be the, the central part of the discussion. Right. Why is that? Why is that a, a risk or where does that become a problem if, if that's their central motivation or the central part of the discussion? You know, I, f- I find that the same, if that's a central part of their motivation, then I think uh, the problems start in the same way that it would for a founder that has that as a central part of their motivation. And it's really said very simply, when the lights are down, you're about to go to sleep, you're done telling the story to investors and to prospects and to people you want to hire. And you're looking up at the ceiling and saying, is this really going to work? You have to be able to answer that question and say, it has to work because I have to bring this change in. I have to bring this change to the world. You can't really answer that question with, you know, it has to work because I want to make a bunch of money. And so, so that's really how, how it all comes together and, and why why you want people who feel that way because you want people who are going to go with you during the challenging times because they have a real sense of accomplishment and fulfillment by the work that you're doing. That's well said. And I think the rigor that you applied to your whole process of like where to play and how to win and what to do, it was, I can certainly see helping lay that out for people as well as yourself. And when you, when it is dark at night and you're asking that question, yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, yeah, it's funny. You really lose track of how many times you tell the founding story. Sometimes I just joke around with uh, my friends. I have probably told my founding story no less than 400 times in the last 18 months. I mean, it's amazing. And, and, and by the way, when I was doing uh, uh, Azuka, the first startup, I heard we were in Techstars. And the Techstars folks and other entrepreneurs and VCs would tell us, they keep on focusing us on why did you do this? And I remember when I was going through it the first time going, why do they care so much about why we're doing it? The point is, is that we're here doing it and we're going to make this change. And I totally understand now because people, whether they're partners or potential customers or potential employees, they want to believe, they want to go with you on the journey. They want to either purchase, join or partner with an organization that's trying to make a difference. 
it's, it's, it's just a whole different way of thinking. You know, we have a great advisor, Kelly Wright, and she was the initial sales leader at Tableau, did an amazing job, took them through going public, built an $800 million a year business. Now she sits on many boards and teaches classes. And I remember early on having really interesting discussions with her around what kind of customers do we want? And it wasn't, it wasn't, it sounds really kind of foreign even to myself to have that conversation because if you hear it out of context, you might say it sounds quite, you know, in a way egotistic that you'd be able to pick your customers or there, there's a sense of entitlement, but that's not at all what we were talking about. What we were talking about is we have to ally with customers and partners that actually believe in enhancing the trust of organizations. You know, somebody could, could potentially try to buy our software to use it to hide certain things instead of, you know, make them better. And we have to really be careful about that because we want to work together in the community with our customers and partners to really affect the change. And, you know, obviously going back to some of the things we were talking about before, Adam, if we, if we didn't have that notion of starting the company to affect the change, you wouldn't be having those kinds of discussions with your advisors. Right. 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 If you don't know what change you're trying to create, you don't know what you're asking your customers to enroll in or what movement exactly. they're trying to be part of. Right. Exactly. It's just a check. It's like, Oh my God, I got that check. That's great. But like, where are you really going with all this? You know? Right. No, I've, I've been in that place before and yeah, I can certainly appreciate that. And I love the way you're thinking about it. It's a great story. I love hearing about how this came together and I'm excited to watch it grow. I want to wrap up with the supersonic six. Number one is what other people and companies in Seattle do you admire the most? I mean, two that I'll call out, and it's because I know, I know their founders reasonably well, and I really like what they're doing. They're both repeat founders. One is called Ally, and it's Vetri Valor's company. And I think they did an amazing job walking through kind of and seeing uh, this need for more accountability with OKRs. And the way he's, Vetri's been building it in terms of not really treating it as necessarily a, a large enterprise, you know, sales cycle and really getting a lot of traction really fast. He raised he probably had a record for raising like uh, effectively a series A, series B. I'm not sure what he's calling those two rounds. I think within like three months of each other, just, just, and also he's just a great guy and a great leader. Uh, so love, love what they're doing. The other one is I find really interesting is TerraClear and TerraClear was founded by Brent Fry and Brent, I know he, Smartsheet, he was a founder of Smartsheet. Uh, he founded Onyx before that. I worked with him a little bit when uh, we were partnering with him back in my first company at Azuka. But I love what he's done. He actually, after having this, these kind of like knock it out of the park successes, he decided to go home back to his farm and he was asked to, to pick up rocks by his family. And so he decided he's going to do a new startup, which goes beyond software into hardware, which is about, you know, AI and, and uh, you know, kind of internet of things. And he's going to build machines to clear rocks, which is a lot harder than it sounds. So I, I think that's amazing. Number two, what's the one thing that Seattle needs to improve as a startup hub? I think, you know, it's probably been the same answer for a long time, getting, getting a little better here, but slowly more choices in terms of capital. And let me just be clear with that. The VC firms that we have and the investors in the area are great. It's not that. It's just we need a whole lot more of them because, you know, you really want a competitive market on both sides. And to some degree, I don't think the market for financing is as competitive here as it needs to be. Number three, what book or books do you come back to the most? Well, I think the one that I recommend the most, especially in this context to, to founders, you know, because I think we all read a whole bunch of them when we're getting going. We don't want to make mistakes uh, live. We want to figure them out before. There's a good book. Uh, it's just was so enjoyable to read called Founders Dilemmas by Noam Wasserman. And in it, what he, he did this kind of study of, I think it was maybe a thousand enterprises 
uh, where are you going to get that kind of you know insight? A thousand enterprises, and what 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 he did with it, which was so interesting, was he just decided to split it in to all these different axes to try to tell you as a founder or potential founder what has the actual result been from companies that started with family members, friends, non-friends, companies that started with a single founder, two founders, or more, companies that took financing, you know, at this stage, that stage, and then. He gets some really interesting insights into, which I really found valuable, uh, and we've been talking about here, Adam, into what's your motivation to actually start a company. He has these concepts he calls king and rich. And the concept of rich is I'll do anything it takes to make a successful financial startup, you know, including I'll work through my entire founding team, I'll shuttle myself out as the CEO, no worries, as long as financially we're successful. And then there's king. King is much more concerned about control. This is a problem I want to solve. I want to be doing it for 10 years. Um, that's the most important thing to me. Hopefully it doesn't become a life cycle, a lifestyle business. It's a little better than that. But that is one of the things that's the most important. And when you read through that, you really can kind of, you know, check your, um, your ambitions, your desires, and see why are you actually doing this, and then structure a company in a much more effective way. So I, I really like that book. That sounds awesome. That sounds perfect for the, the highly structured thinker as well, and the analytical yeah, type like yourself. Number four, what do you know today that you wish you'd known 10 years ago? Well, some of the stuff that we talked about here, Adam, around, I'll just, I'll summarize it as the definition of success. I think that's kind of the key because I, again, it's back to the romanticizing of the startup experience. I make sure that I understood back then that that's really kind of not what you're in it for. And you have to really understand your purpose. And, and that has to really drive everything you did versus just seeing a potential opportunity in the market. It's got to be more, from my perspective at least, it's got to be more than that to really hold your attention and keep you going through, you know, those times that are a little bit darker. Let's go more recent. Number five, what's a surprising learning you've had in the last year with Hyperproof? Well, I think the most surprising thing for me has been challenges around leadership in some very difficult situations. I mean, we have the COVID situation. We had to close down the office. You know, who knows when we're going to get back in there. There's such a wide range of different people's feelings as to when they want to go back, what the criteria needs to go back. I've had to, you know, personally challenge myself to recognize my own my own view on those issues as one particular view, which I'm absolutely like allowed to have, but then try to distinguish that from what is the exact right thing to do for the company. Even people in the company have an extremely wide range of views. Some people don't want to come back before the new year. Some people want back immediately, like it couldn't happen soon enough. And then you add on the whole unrest and everything that's happened, you know, recently, um, especially in our city and, you know, in both in Seattle and in Bellevue, and it absolutely has its effects on our small team. And so even though up till this point, I kind of felt, you know, really, really comfortable with my ability to manage, because I've managed very large teams at Microsoft and things like that, this one-two punch of different, of these, these kind of like forces on the system and these really unfortunate situations has absolutely caused me and my leadership team to really have to go back to like some core principles that really extend beyond leading a company, but more to kind of like, how do you experience and communicate your humanity through this whole, through this whole, you know, challenging time. So perhaps I think I've grown more as a person, even than as a leader during this time, but it's been challenging. It's been very, very difficult, but uh, you know, I can't say I'm happy we had to go through it, but you know, we're coming out the other end in, in, uh, in a pretty good place, but it's been a challenge. 
Last question, number six, what can this community do to help you? Are there any things you want people to draw their attention to or uh, help out with? I would say, you know, more standard kind of stuff here. You know, we really want to participate in the community in, in many axes, both along the axes of what we were talking about in terms of some of the unrest. We're doing some things there, but also just industry events and, you know, being able to, you know, come partner with people and things like that. So any opportunities to present, to partner, to help other, you know, startups or founders, we're really all about that. So it'd be great to reach out. We have a particular interest in working with startups because uh, now more than ever, startups have to do compliance work in order to really close their first big customers. And so we have, you know, initiatives to, to, to do that with startups. We've, we've been going around before COVID to the WeWork to trying to get engagement that way. It may not be, you know, the highest price ticket for us, but it's a way that we'd like to, you know, try to, try to give back and help out. So I think just, you know, engaging with us as a, as a good partner, uh, a potential customer, and, you know, just bringing us into the right discussions, you know, we just, we just want to be a big part of the community. So people who need help with compliance, definitely Craig's a guy to talk to. <laughs> uh, I've been there with GDPR and, and security and all of that stuff. Even in the startups now, it is a real, real thing and a real headache. So it is. Uh, it is. glad you guys are out there helping with this. For people who want to keep in touch with you, follow along, um, where should they follow you or find you, Craig? So you can always email me, Craig, at hyperproof.io. You can go to my LinkedIn, Craig Unger. We're also pretty active on social networks with Hyperproofs. You can go to Hyperproofs LinkedIn. Thank you so much, Craig. Thank you, Adam. It was a real pleasure. Is it on? I think it's on. Hey, it's Adam again. Quick note before you go. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show as much as I am enjoying making it. If you do like it, please leave a rating or a review. I would help other people find it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you have any feedback, send me an email, adamseattlepodcast at gmail.com. No underscores, no periods, just adamseattlepodcast at gmail.com. 